0: I was in this training called Defecting from White Supremacy, and it's like 70 white men. And the reason they're gathering is they're being asked by women and trans folks and BIPOC folks, please talk to your people. I end up coming across vulnerabilities and pains that in mixed space, most white men aren't going to talk about. Where I see the resistance is it comes up in all these excuses. Well, I can't keep up with all these pronouns or... Oh, the woke mob strikes again. But all that's coming from fear.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today our guest is Tim McKee, publisher of North Atlantic Books, an educational nonprofit publishing house that collaborates with partners to develop cross-cultural perspectives, nurture holistic views of art, science, the humanities and healing, and seed personal and global transformation by publishing work on the relationship of body, spirit, and nature. Tim is interviewed today by my colleague, Esra Peoples. Esra is Associate Director of Diversity and Inclusion Education at Tufts University. She has over 25 years of experience serving in leadership roles that revolve around social justice in the arts, education, political, and nonprofit sectors. Her expertise lies in advising organizations on how to best create internal conditions that allow equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice to flourish. Her opinions and writings have been featured in the Washington Post, Oakland Post, Blogger, and YFS Magazine. S. Ray is currently rooted in motherhood, love, and community in Somerville, Massachusetts. And we are so happy to have her on board. Today's episode is really intriguing for me as it deals with the responsibility that white men in particular have when it comes to creating a more equitable society. I think that the respect and honesty on both sides of this conversation are particularly notable, to ground this interview, Esra Peoples writes, the conversation with Tim McKee, publisher for North Atlantic Books, is of unique importance, particularly for white men, who want to engage in the collective work towards racial justice. Both candid and coming from a seat of compassion, the conversation explores the distinct role and responsibilities white men have in moving the needle forward on racial justice, given their locations within a racialized society, where they are the beneficiaries, given the fact that they are both white and male. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation and find ample food for thought.
2: My name is S. Ray Peoples. I'm doing this pilot for SLN around creating space for folks to think about the world that we want to live in, the type of America and society and communities that we want to live in years from now, and what that looks like in terms of conversations we need to have in the here and now, so that we impact our there and tomorrow, so to speak, to engage in such a conversation. I have with me, Tim McKee, who's a dear friend and colleague. I work along, learn alongside um, him for several years, admire the way that he parents, admire the way that he steps into conversations, into situations with compassion um, and clarity. And so, wanted to invite Tim into the space to kind of chit chat (laughs) about all the things that we need to be thinking about as we move ahead um, collectively towards our future and our tomorrow. So Tim, again, thank you for taking and being gracious with your time and joining me. I'm going to just open up the floor to you for introductions before we dive into some of the questions and conversations. I would love for you to share, you know, your personal professional context right and yeah you know, by that I mean how how do you currently show up in the world what ways do you currently contribute or invest in the quality of our human experience and then maybe what identities are grounding you in this conversation or what values might you be guided by in our conversation today
0: yeah I'm, I'm honored to be in conversation with you we always have Great dialogue. So um, I always look forward to it. Yeah, let's see. You know, I, I would ground myself in working on books and ideas. I'm a publisher at North Atlantic Books, and I still work to find interesting books, work with the authors on making the books as strong as possible. It's one of my true joys. I'm actually in our office now, even though we're virtual And one of my highlights of my life, really, is when I see the finished book of a book that I can remember beginning as just a loose conversation, you know, and often that was like several years before. So in that way, I see myself as a shepherd of ideas and using my positionality as somebody who can edit books and is a publisher to get those books and those ideas onto the highway, and um, you know there really is still this highway of ideas that you know there's so many books in there, but there's so many amazing books and thinkers that that don't get onto the highway. They try to jump the fence, they try to dig <laughs> under, and and all power to them. But really, there's these on ramps, and and that would be you know mainstream. Media. And so I'm a gatekeeper. You know, I, I have to be clear about that and, and recognize that. And I'm also an activist. And racial justice has been something that has been central to my life. I'm not sure exactly why uh, it started, but I can remember being a kid in elementary school in Los Angeles in the 70s. And our school was a site of integration, and there were um, largely African-American kids being bused from Inglewood to Westwood, and recognizing at that really young age that there was something up there and that it wasn't just, oh, they're fellow students. I mean, of course they were, but I intuited some inequity, I think, early on, and I think that was the, the seed of it. So, I, you know, I, I do a lot of work within our organization to keep us evolving around equity. And I also push within publishing in general. So I'm, I'm looking to enter conversations with partners, sometimes on my own, and be a little pushy to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that American book publishing, like all the industries. Is super white at the top. It's super male and white. And I'd say it's only been the last few years where congregations of people in publishing are actually open to mm. talking about it. I think it was just easier to just hide behind, a, you know, we're all people and we'll get there someday and kind of like awkward if someone said, it's interesting to me that in this room of 40 publishers that there's only one person of color here and five women like can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. So it's really just been in the last few years. So I'm a, that's one place I put a lot of time and energy.
2: Have you been seeing return on your time and energy in those spaces?
0: Yeah, be, uh, because folks end up following up and asking how to do certain things, you know, not like I'm Mr. Expert, like, oh, let me tell you, but more experientially things we've done. So an example might be, we have a transparent salary scale at North Atlantic Books, and that came out of the racial equity committee we have in as much as when salaries are s- secret, not transparent, it's usually obscuring inequity. mm mm-hmm. And so like lift, lifting the light on that. Yeah. Like what, what's, you know, and we don't have like a flat salary scale where literally everyone's paid the same, but yeah, what is the difference between the top person and lowest person? And and also what's the logic and the architecture so that it's clear Mm -hmm. why someone's paid more, you know, what, what work they're doing that's different. What are the paths towards promotion? So anyway, I've talked about that a little. And in these publishing settings, and I always get some people saying, will you share that with us? Mm -hmm. Because we actually would like to do that. Mm -hmm. So we're very open source with it. And so it's been encouraging. I don't, I haven't followed up to see like who- Who's
2: actually implemented it or followed through, but at Mm -hmm. least they're asking. Yeah. Which is a part of the conversation.
0: (laughs) Right. Or like our own staff got a um, training in radical copy editing, because as we were working with a more and more diverse set of authors, we were increasingly running into issues where authors, usually not of normative identities, were saying, what's up with that change? I like to spell it that way. Thank you very much. And your correction actually might like offend some people in this community that kind of thing so our whole staff went through this two-hour session with the radical copy editor Alex Capitan it was amazing but so anyway other publishers have now been asking I mean Alex hopefully has gotten a lot of work from this because they're just like wait how what how do we do it and I said basically pay the person and listen yeah yeah and and then, you know, make, make the changes. Pay the so that...
2: person, be transparent, be willing to change. It's a fascinating title. When I think of radical, I think of, you know, getting to the root, getting to the source, something that fundamentally can change everything, right? And so to think about how in your sphere, how a word or a punctuation, an exclamation point or a period, right? All of the things can can be so powerful, and that that actually, when you sit and and think about the the relationship between like words and punctuation, how it actually has the power to frame or reframe narratives that impact culture in the way that we we congregate and the way that we collectively move towards something. So that that is a powerful kind of position and a, and a concept. So thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah, you know, and and one of the things that I learned from from going through that training was around they were encouraging us to really focus on care more than being correct. So, you know, I think there can be this thing like, oh, like let me memorize the right exact wording to say when I'm in this mixed space and like, oh, oh god, like I I like was incorrect. Yeah. And you know alex's point is that first of all there's not a monolith of you know diverse people but also language is always evolving so kind of yeah it's great when you're correct
1: mm-hmm. but
0: actually that's not the frame and right. the, and that and care and that's going to actually be felt and seen and work much better than kind of thinking that if you memorize all the lexicon perfectly of things you're supposed to say and not say that you're somehow doing equity work.
2: Right. And the thing with that too, is that if you memorize it, let's say that you do memorize the lexicon, it's the lexicon for today, right? And so if you're only able to speak in the lex, you know, to hold the lexicon of the present and not move, like be able to be fluid enough to evolve into the lexicon of futures, right? you you know individually collectively or organizationally become irrelevant right because it 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 actually at some point will no longer the terms and phrases and and framings would have moved forward while you stayed in place and static right so and 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 to your point you know the conversations that you start and you initiate in, in your spheres of influence the point isn't that there's an answer within the conversation, right? The point is that we be bold enough to step into a conversation that we might not have language for or know the right language or have a, a clear understanding, but that we, we step into it knowing that there's, there's something, something will emerge that will be for the betterment of mm-hmm. us, right? All of us. I recently was in this webinar um, with, Social Economic Justice, the team for that organization, they worked with a fellow. The fellow's name is Angela Peoples, And they recently put out a report on reframing America identity, right, into the future. And they set it out 30 years. So the framings and conversations for that webinar was centered around what is America and what does our identity look like in 2052? And I'd like to pose that question to you I would like for you to think about the future of America 30 years out. So it's, you know, 2052. It's a period where our collective experience is both untethered from, and it's no longer actively and exhaustively resisting forms of oppression, right? Whether that's racism, transphobia, xenophobia, what all of the things, what does, that America or that American identity look like to you and what does it feel like for you in your body
0: yeah um certainly the feelings would be relief and kind of incredulity that actually we reached that kind of country not that i don't think it's possible but i guess i'm just so used to it not being that way that it's a little incredible to imagine. In terms of what it would look like, it's really, I would say, I'm not quite sure. Um, And what I mean by that is, I've noticed that once in a while, I'm in a space that is, let's say, being facilitated and led by um, black and brown folks. And I might be like the only white dude in there. And First of all, I feel stoked that I'm in there. But also what I've noticed is that the meetings and the events are are actually different. And it's kind of like, I feel like so many folks who haven't been particularly straight white men, they've obviously been contributing and living their lives and, and doing rad work. But the influence on the larger field -hmm. It is still emergent. Like, what would publishing look like if it was really embodying this kind of makeup that you're talking about? It would not look like it is now. And I get a taste of that in those events. And what does that feel like for me in those events? I'd have to say they're funner, (laughs) that there's some more joy going on, more candor probably a little less formal and stilted. Mm -hmm. And there's just kind of like a a lattice of mutual respect that is just kind of there that I think in spaces and constellations that are more full of normative people, it's almost like you can feel the try hard going Mm -hmm. on to, to get there. And you can see the intention and you can see the work and that's good. It's better than that not being there, but it's very visible, you know, and I'm not trying to like pedestalize people, you know, who, who have identities different than mine. So, wow, what would it be like if we were really allowing the flavor, the shape, the experience of, let's say a disabled trans person who was an astrologer, how Due to their identity, they had had uh, that had shaped the way they viewed astrology, practiced astrology. And so, therefore, what they would be contributing to astrology would be unique and shaped by that. Well, astrology itself would change and it would be evolving because the more that those experiences and those who use are, are centered the more certain sacred cows with any discipline would start to kind of fade and melt away,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. right? And so I'm not scared of that at all. Like for me, it's like, let those melt away. So like my role in that society 30 years from now might be a little different. That doesn't scare me. I would probably be doing even more listening, maybe some more following, And then the particular skill and power that I have, it would probably be harnessed very specifically, which wouldn't that be preferable for me too? Um, I was in this, I've been taking this training called Defecting from White Supremacy, and it's like 70 white men. And the reason they're gathering is to, they're being asked by women and trans folks and BIPOC folks, please talk to your people. Right. Right. Right like you up
2: your kin, yeah,
0: yeah, and it's interesting being in that space because you end up I end up coming across kind of vulnerabilities and pains that in mixed space, uh most white men aren't going to talk about, right, like talking about how hard it is to be a white man in mixed space, like eh, so, gonna
2: happen, right yeah,
0: <laughs> no, no. and you know, I think that's good, right, but not being in mixed space, which is the the reason they kept it to, to white dudes. Whoa, there is some serious pain going on there. And at one point they asked us to make these different quadrants, like spiritual, psychological, physical. And they basically said, just write down ways in which the white patriarchy has harmed you in these categories. And I'm telling you, that chat was lighting up. It was not like hard for these people to come up with things. And it was so varied, everything from dealing with a chronic knee issue, because as a young athlete, I was pushed to always perform. So I was pushed into injury. Regardless
2: of if you were hurt.
0: Yeah. exacerbating the the injury. Yeah. And then someone wrote like the pain of always thinking I need to be an expert on something and the loss of listening Mm. from having to do that. So for me to kind of be like, this is what the group needs from me. It's run by, you know, disabled, black, queer person who's great in that role. Here's what they need me to do. I don't see a loss there. I I see gain both for America, but also for everyone in there, including myself.
2: I'm actually fascinated by this group that you just talked about of white men, because that that is kind of like a segue into the next question around thinking about what an America in 2052 could look like. What does that mean specifically for white men, particularly around allyship, right? How, what's their work in the here and now to create the seeds or create the possibility for that type of America to be? And... Like in that too, I right hear in that America, there's like space for anybody to tend to the ways in which we've, we've been harmed differently by oppression and domination and white supremacy. we like, what's the work that you believe or have been involved in? What's the work in the here and now that is required of white men uniquely, right? Specifically because they are of their location to, race, sex and power in America?
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd say first and foremost, like actually believing that we have something to learn from listening to people who don't look like us. So I come across this mentality, sometimes even within myself, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's good that this is mixed space. And like, oh, cool, that the, the board chairs, you know, now black woman and, and like, that's progress. But really, the, the real step would be like, what do I have to learn in my listening under that new leadership? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to rather, like be changed by that power shift. So it's one thing to like, accept the power shift, and be like, ooh, I've got kind of a diminished role now, like, that's intense. And like, uh, I guess I need to work on that, but it's good. This is happening. That's fine. But it's, that's like one one okay. I think the harder level would be like actually believing. Like if I listen to this disabled person running the meeting, not that they have to be talking about being disabled, but, and I'm open to really them, perhaps sharing some things, thinking some things, doing some things that, are a little bit different, that I'm actually going to learn something more about the topic we're covering, life itself. So in that way, it's definitely getting past the performative. But even that, it's also, it's actually seeing the benefit, not in some sort of extractive way. But so for the white person to be like, there's something in it for you in terms of your own growth, if you're in that kind of room.
2: Do you feel like that point is still extractive or is it is it like a necessary personal development? Right. Because if I if I'm thinking, what can I get out of or how can you know, like what do I have to gain from this new and different shift of power dynamics or this space? It still feels a bit extractive, right? Because you're wondering what am I going to what's in it for me or how do I benefit
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have so many choices and where we can put our time and energy that like, unless I find that unless I'm like stoked about something that I'm gonna, you know, I'm really gonna be maximized and my contributions be maximized if I'm stoked about something. And when I'm stoked about something, it's less like, ooh, this is what I'm getting from it. Uh But but more that I'm, I'm getting the fuel to stay in it. To
2: sustain yourself and okay, mm-hmm. got it. You yeah. Know, otherwise mm-hmm. I'm
0: kind of showing up out of duty and that's going right. to only get us so far. So yeah. So expecting that one might grow from being part of something, I think that can be non-extractive and that it might be naive to think we'll really keep in something if we're not
1: getting that fuel. Our podcast today is brought to you by BetterHelp. I've been doing therapy since my late 20s. and To me, therapy's everything. You know, it really is. It's helped me get through some of the roughest times in my life and live my life more truly. BetterHelp provides online therapy directly to you at a price that's more affordable than traditional offline therapy. So it's a great way to invest in yourself without breaking the bank. And just kind of experiment with talking to another individual whose only job in the world is to help you unravel yourself and take a look at your defenses. When you sign up, you'll match with a therapist according to your needs. And who knows, it might take a few tries to find the right fit for you, so BetterHelp makes it easy and free to change therapists if needed. They have a special offer for our listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at Better H-E-L-P dot com slash esalen. when they ask you how you heard of better help be sure to type in voices of esalen well
0: you know i think the other thing for white men
1: in particular
0: is and i see a lot of it's funny i want to say them but come on Jim, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Um struggling with is finding the sweet spot between decentering themselves and also having agency and 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 really being in service to the group. Mm-hmm. So it's like the decentering is huge like ooh I want to say something but I'm not going to or I'll put up my hand maybe but let me hold back or let me vote for put my vote behind you know this black candidate. So that decentering is surely a practice. Yeah. And considering how much we were enabled to be like dominating meetings that's a lot to be working on that decentering but that's only half the work because like if i'm just decentered and i'm there and i'm taking up space what am i really doing there
2: right how are you contributing
0: right so it's like listening to the group like hey what would you how can i help but that's also putting certain pressure on them So it's kind of like, dang, what am I good at? How can I put some of this privilege that I got to good use? You know, so that's trickier, I think. But again, like, I don't see much action for the person, the white dude, if he's just decentering because, like, that's that's important work and and it's it's exciting work and it's but it's not thorough. But yeah, it's, it's not going to be enough. So um, I think there's like that, well, I can't, I can't have any agency because I don't want to center myself. I get that. It is tricky. But we've got to find that spot. So the way I think of it is like, I may not be running the train or I might not be even like in the leadership of the train, but I'm on the train car. Right. And I'm stoked to be in there. The complexion of who's in the train and who's leading it has changed. And the whole mission is probably going to change. The whole modus operandi is going to change. So it's going to be a little discombobulating. But what can I contribute in that chair? Is it looking after a kid? Maybe. Getting people water? Maybe. But it also might be something of leadership. Like in a moment, it doesn't mean just because you've decentered that you're this faulty toy that is just there because no one's brave enough to kick you out. Right. Like you better show your value. Right. It's also, you know, the opportunity to really, to rethink
2: and reframe, redefine perhaps how, what leadership is, right? Because for many of us, including white men, leadership is defined by a very strict Parameters narrow, and it's not, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have the space to account for the ways in which leadership manifests itself outside of those, right? Outside of the parameters. So, in your example, the, the way in which, you know, taking care of a child, mothering or fathering or guiding a young soul is, can be, is leadership or seeing, caring for someone, caring for someone's needs, right? Is leadership. And I think this points to like in terms of the conversations, the importance of engaging in conversations because it helps us to renegotiate our relationship to each other and our positionality to each other and resources like water, right? Resources like the capacity to care for someone or a little one, right? It it would it's it's wonderful to think about white men seeing. The shifting of power and being uneasy about that, or having some type of fear, and also being able to step into conversations, or, or, or to be simply naming, like I know, like this change is is for our good, not your good, but like our good. Mm-hmm. And I'm just gonna name the elephant in the room and just say I am scared. And yes, that's about it. Like all of this, all of this change, and all of it so sudden, it could feel to some is, you know, it's a lot, you know, and I'm just naming it. I don't know if, if anybody wants to hold it or if I'm just supposed to hold it, but I, I, you know, like that naming is a part of the conversation that helped us to move towards that, whatever 2052 America is, right? Together, not, not dismembered, right? Or leaving parts of ourselves,
0: yeah. And you know, some of the white men, you know, might need to create support networks and and talk with themselves about some of those struggles. And it's shocking to me in the in that group how few have any friends or family members or neighbors who they they share a race and a gender with that they can talk about this stuff. Like for some of them they literally say this is the first time I've actually talked about the challenges of being a man to men. And I feel lucky that I, I have some friendships and communities where I, I can talk that way. But so taking the cue from from women and non-binary folks and and, and black and brown folks to, to not do it, uh, to be accountable in the way that white men do this. That's key, because the last thing we need is like another like men's movement of dudes drumming in the woods like while their uh-huh. wives are taking care of them, right so so it's really been done badly a lot so yeah. it has to be done in accountability um but it will probably be necessary because it is going to be hard and what i see is that where i see the resistance is it comes up in all these excuses to not get into the train changing yeah so be like, Well, I can't keep up with all these pronouns or her name's hard to pronounce or, oh, the woke mob strikes again. And I'm like, first of all, no one in that train uses the term woke, just so you know, but also bring on the group of people that look different. If you want to call that woke mob, you can, but I'm telling you it's coming, right? There's no stopping it. People are not going back in the closet. They're not, but all that's coming from fear
2: right right so i was gonna say you know you you, you creating more spaces like the ones that you you mentioned where white men can actually use these these names and terms that really not many of us are using but you know they're still holding and to really from a radical perspective allow them the space to really get at the root of like why are you using this term like woke and mob and woke and mob, together, especially, um, in a way that is dismissive, like, you know, like in, in a way that's hurtful or yeah, dismissive, right? But what's what's behind what's deeper than that? Or if you're showing up angry, right? To give folks the space to understand that from that anger, like i you know, I've been really reading lately Lamarad Owens' book, Love and Rage, and to like to, to be able to say like. This anger is really from fear, but this anger is, un, you know, to t- unattended to trauma and hurt that I have, right? And to move from that could produce something so much more meaningful, not to just white men, but to collective, to community. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and what, what you're talking about in terms of like the resources or like these spaces, I i, I think about, you know, there aren't many spaces Outside of organizations, but certainly not within organizations, right? That that create these containers for white men to explore and to to engage in these conversations. We certainly like in my 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 background is um, higher education, and many colleges and universities definitely have you know resources for both faculty and students, faculty staff and students, um, particularly the um, from traditionally excluded communities to congregate to gather right, to encourage each other, to push and challenge each other, right, but there isn't necessary, there isn't a healthy alternative or, like, a a, a healthy space for white men in, in mm-hmm. the same way, um, so that's interesting to think about, like, what, what's needed within organizations.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, like, for those white men, like, expecting <laughs> to get the stink eye around this, yeah, yeah, like, like, and the men in this group have talked about this that, like, when they mention that they're attending this thing, a lot of people aren't understanding it. It's like mm-hmm. a bunch of white men getting to talk about race and power. Yikes.
2: Yeah, but what's the alternative, right? The alternative is talking about race through encounters online or otherwise that's actually trying to, uh, uh, like, that's actually attracting particularly young white males in the service of engaging in dehumanizing and violent acts right so the like we're going to be talking about here, here we're going to be talking about race and we're going to be talking about power and gender and capitalism and all of the things and so it's like in what way do you do that like how including white men how do you talk about those things so that it's contributing to the lattice right of community and intersectionality that you were referring to how do you do we like where are those spaces so they don't if there's nothing to opt out into from something then where do you go
0: And it it ends up coming out anyway, like often in mixed space, like in the form of explosion or like total fragility. So like it gets metabolized, this fear. Yeah, it, yeah. So like in a way, like if the white men aren't doing that work, it will be- It'll uh, show up, it shows up. It'll show up and it's gonna yeah. slam people. And it's gonna be like, oh gosh. Um, and that's, that's sad, but you know, the white men's fear is real. The stakes are high because in that future, like America doesn't need white men. I mean, like even thinking about developments within medicine and like how people can get pregnant and who can get pregnant and like, like literally like white, there's some books about this that like white men's skill sets and what they're good at. Isn't that good? Is it? Is it? Despite all the the privilege, so it's like we've been riding the wave of mediocrity, right? Like we'll be fine without you, mm, and we'll yeah. probably be better without you. Like that's real. So white men, I get their fear, but it's like they got to pick up their game in something that is helpful to the larger community. Otherwise, unless someone's just giving them a pity chair on the train, right? That train does not need them.
2: Right. And there's very few people that's going to be giving anything out of pity on the train. It, it, it reminds me of what, you know, like in terms of how my conversations with cousins around relationships, like the notion for in, that I have with with men in general is like, I don't I don't actually need you, but I want you. I want you to be a. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to I want you a part of my life, but I don't need you. Or that's so two separate things, right, and so like from from your perspective and translating that over for white men, you know, like this process or what you're talking about, like you're saying, like there isn't a need, there perhaps was never a need, but beyond the need, if you set that aside, if we're trying to get somewhere in a way that's whole, right, white men are here, and they're a part of us, like if they're a part of us, right, and so get over it's like you know get over yourself your ego and the feeling needed and how do we go forward based off of our mutual want of each other Mm -hmm. um before we wrap up i'm just gonna ask we this was like a whirlwind conversation here but are there any other points for conversation you believe white men should be having or need to have in the here and now in order to affect and to have an impact or contribute for to our tomorrow as a
0: country? Yeah, I mean, I think a key cornerstone is really having deep friendships and professional relationships really across a lot of difference. That that is just like, like first step. Mm. B- because like You know, sometimes I'll just encounter someone whose stereotypes and and bias and like negative baggage about a group is so, I'm just like, have you actually ever talked with a trans person like like early? And like, usually it's not. So like that kind of deep listening of what we have to learn, but also where we can contribute and how that is only going to come if we're in rooms where it is mixed space and how does a white man get in mixed space and like be there like deservedly that's going to be
2: causing harm.
0: Yeah. That's going to come about from receptivity, listening, integrity, you know, you and me have been through a bunch of things, you know, professionally and personally. And so like our friendship has been built through all of that. Mm -hmm. There's no skipping, like, Ooh, maybe if I can become friends with more black people, my, uh, I'll have a more relevant role. Like I I get that as a strategy for a white man, it's rather clever, but it ain't going to work if those aren't real relationships. And in that way, it's not about quantity, you know? And like, I'll sometimes come across these white men who are like name dropping all of their allies across difference. And I'm just like, just have a few deep solids and seek those relationships, you know? So it's like, not in a tokenistic way, but in that idea that we're all richer from having friendships and professional relationships across difference. And that that's not a performance. That that's, the proof is in that pudding that life's more interesting. Right.
2: Right. And it allowed you to go, you know, the depth and breadth of those, the relationship, you know, even if it's few, the breadth and depth that we're, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, relate, so our friendship um, and our collaboration professionally and per- personally, like I said in the beginning, I don't have many that I'm many white men that I'm able to step into like a conversation like this with, with, uh, uh, you know, like authenticity and a state of um, vulnerability But it's the work that you put in, like the cultivating of the relationship over the years that's allowed us to kind of step, kind of dive into the water around this conversation together, right? Um, And explore what's in the water, what's, how murky is the water? How clear is it in some areas where I might be comfortable, (laughs) you know, what, where you might be comfortable in the water what water what parts of the pool or or body you know so to speak is too deep for me to go into at this point, you know, which is okay and where I've in my head some of the conversations that we're have you know that we've had um even today it's like, oh, you know, in my mind putting a bookmark in it like I need to go deeper into that area or I need to explore that more like you know, but you can't really have that kind of adventurous conversation or a conversation that allows you to explore without restriction if if the relationship isn't there.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, and like for a place like Esalen, where I've been many times and had a lot of transformative experiences, you know, it would be like, wow, are we really open to everything being different? Because that would be the result of a true inclusive community, you know, versus can we right. get inclusive, but like not change too much. Right, right. That ain't going to work. And we see, see so many examples of that. And more and more, I'm finding yeah. that queer folks, BIPOC folks are just like, when they sniff that performance, it's like outie. Right. So um, it's what an opportunity, like, to imagine going to Esalen and like having the kind of transformational experiences I've had there, but to be in a transformed environment. And I've, I've seen it. as Mm -hmm. I think I first went maybe 12 years ago Mm -hmm. and I saw how old fashioned it was in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. despite the kind of like transformative dressing. And I saw some of the growing pains also along the way, but as someone who's been there a lot, My experience actually changed as SLN started to change. Mm -hmm. I found it much more humble, much more welcoming, much less snooty, Mm -hmm. much less like, don't you know how special we are? Which all of those qualities were pretty pronounced when I first went, I was just like, geez, I don't feel, I kind of feel alienated here. Is this just, and, and, I was following the pain points of Esalen changing mm-hmm. saw that some people were hating on that. And all I know is as I kept going, I was like, it's getting better. Yeah. It really is. And, and so I feel sad for the people who felt disempowered by that, yeah. but, and they can be loud voices, but it wasn't most people. And so the promise of this work continuing at a place like that is very exciting. Yeah, exciting indeed. And, and my experience with change in organizations is like, once you get on the road to it, you can't pick and choose the things that need to change. Mm-hmm. It's not like a, a buffet menu. <laughs> An a la carte. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it might be this small thing. It might be this huge thing. This thing might really bother people that you didn't even realize. So really, you have to be open to everything changing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm and and that's rather frightening and and my experience is that everything doesn't change right and it's not like some huge discombobulation and and that if the organization or the entity is healthy enough it won't break it right with- changes, but, but kind of thinking, ooh, we don't want to change our way of running meetings, or we don't want to change our financial model, like you can't pick and choose, right,
2: everything is on the table for discussion. And I think, you know, because now we're moving into a different conversation, which I think is needed, but we'll have to save it for another time, perhaps is like, the notion in this work of the value of of non attachment, right, Mm. knowing that everything can change and being okay with that, because you're not attached to those ways, right but I digress. I know we're at. Yeah, we'll have
0: to do it. We'll have to do a part two at some point.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. But again, you know, I just want to thank you again for your time and the conversation. This is like, you know, the treat of my day that to be able to have like projects where I can have conversations like this with friends and colleagues and comrades in the work is, you know, just the cherry on the Sunday for me. So thank you.
0: Hey, me too. I was really looking forward to it and have enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a great day, way to start my day.
1: Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well.